everyone, and welcome to Monday Night Law. I'm Joe Canyon, and I'm with co-host Rob Kleiner. And I know that was a horrible Vince McMahon impersonation, so I apologize in advance. Uh, and here to help us a little bit with the podcast is Jing Han. Hey, Jing, how are you doing? Coming yeah, how back are you? to try to make sure that we don't uh, say too many things that are just unintelligible to non-lawyers, because we forget what things are things that we learned in law school and what things we knew already. So it's helpful to have someone here to say, hey, what does that word mean? And to stop me from doing that Vince McMahon impersonation again. Uh, also, just to start out with a disclaimer, this is uh, meant to be educational and entertaining, uh, but is not officially legal advice. Right. Educational and entertaining, if that. <laughs> if that. But not legal advice. And uh, we, have, we have two interesting topics today I think you'll like. Both are uh, employment-related. Uh, we're going to start out with some, some workers' comp, particularly an issue on horseplay in the workplace. And then uh, I'm going to follow it up if we have enough time with uh, some unemployment law, which, uh, which I judged hearings for, uh, for a couple years. So hopefully I can give you some good, good tips and information on that. Uh, Rob, do you want to start with the, uh, the workers' comp? Or? Sure, sure. I think a lot of people probably heard of workers' comp, but I don't know if it's really clear exactly what workers' comp is. Workers' comp is a system that, you know, uh, it makes sure that people who get hurt in the course of their employment can get compensation. It's different than our regular tort system. You know, tort is just a fancy French word for a wrong. But, uh, you know... You hurt, I, you hurt me, I deserve damages based on your negligence. Right, right. You slip in the supermarket, and the supermarket knew that the floor was too slippery. They didn't do anything about That's it. That's a they're, tort. They're responsible for maintaining that. That's a tort. You could sue the supermarket, and you can get your medical bills paid, but you could also get things like pain and suffering or uh, exemplary damages, which is just another word for uh, punitive or treble damages, you know, a, an award that is supposed to punish the other side. So you can get more than just your medical bills paid. You can get all these other things. You can get lost wages. Loss of consortium is a popular one. Loss of consortium, because if I lost my consortium, I'd want money for that. <laughs> Go and buy some more consortium if it's... That's permitted. What is consortium? Well, in the context of loss of consortium. Companionship. Uh, right. Perhaps in a bedroom setting, really. It can be more than that, but it, mm. it uh, I think, is oftentimes a way of alluding to that. So if, say, uh, you know, if a man was hurt in a car accident and could not, uh, you know, he was in the hospital. He's not home with his wife. His wife also has been damaged. So the husband who's in the hospital has been damaged because he's been injured and he has medical bills, but the wife doesn't have him home to do the barbecuing and other things. I mean, this is... So that, that that's, again, a tort and civil liability. This is different than, than workers' compensation, which is injuries that occur in the workplace. But generally, co-workers are uh, immune from, from being sued for damages uh, for, uh, for uh, injuries that occur in the workplace that are caused to other people. And I think you might get into that with this horseplay case. So can I say a uh, tort and a uh, work compensation is the same thing, except for one is happened at the work time and the other is not? Well, workers' comp steps in and takes the place of tort, uh, the tort system in the workplace. So there, it's sort of a compromise. Workers' comp is like an insurance policy. Everyone who has an employee, every business with an employee, has to buy this insurance. And when you buy this workers' comp insurance, you're guaranteeing that your employees who are hurt on the job will get compensation. They'll get their medical bills paid, basically. They're not going to get the rest of the stuff. An eye, for example, would be worth a certain amount of money. Right, there's um, a whole schedule. An arm, a leg, 
you know, might, <laughs> might cost the workers' compensation insurance an arm and a leg based on Right, the and price your, is, your right arm yeah. is generally going to be more valuable than your left arm because most people I are know right handed. <laughs> Joe has a very intimate relationship with, <laughs> with many of his body parts, not to mention his right That's arm. for high-fiving other people like you, Rob. Uh, he's, a, he's a very charismatic and sociable person. <laughs> so, so the workers' comp system, it's sort of this compromise. You don't get everything you can get under tort, but it's easier. You, you submit your you know, uh, doctor's reports, you show that you've been hurt, and you prove that it was on the job, and you get paid. You don't have to worry about, uh, you know, if you had someone slips in the supermarket, and the supermarket's going through bankruptcy, they might not get paid for that claim. But if they get paid, they might be able to get a lot more than they would if it was workman's comp. So, you know, the, the customer and the employee who both simultaneously slip in the supermarket, they have different results, because one of them gets workman's comp and can't sue otherwise, the other one can sue the supermarket at tort. So it's a different outcome, but uh, there was an interesting case in 2008. In and you got you got to tell everybody the name of this case because it worked so well for for injury in the in the in the workplace involving horseplay. And it's a very memorable name. Mm -hmm. The name of the case actually is Grabowski versus Mangler. <laughs> and this is and a Grabowski case was was allegedly mangled by Mangler, which makes Mangler and some others. But right, right it's true. I don't want to put it all on him. <laughs> Mangler's name was the one really stuck on the case. So, so that's the way we refer to it, Grabowski versus Mangler. And uh, Grabowski and Mangler and the others were all pipe fitters at a, a certain company. I don't recall if it says or not. I think the company was it's called you know, White and Fellow Pipe Fitters or something <laughs> like that. But, but my understanding of, of uh, the day-to-day -day for a pipe fitter is they have a lot of downtime between gigs. That's what the, the case certainly seem, seems to indicate. And that, that factors into their ultimate decision, which we'll, we'll get to. And having all this time on their hands, uh, instead of fitting pipes, since that's you know between pipe fitting jobs, they like to pull pranks on each other and do some horseplay. Some of it actually very dangerous potentially. And in this case, Grabowski was duct taped to a metal pole from ankle to shoulder, so like a mummy just wrapped up in duct tape. And he struggled against the duct tape, which caused a severe spinal injury. And uh, he also got uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from the incident. They and left him in a bathroom, duct taped like this. I'm sorry, Joe, you were about No, that's, that's fine. That's, uh, I mean, allegedly, this was not the first time that Grabowski, even himself, had been uh, duct taped in, in the office office environment, which ends up actually coming into, into the court's decision. I just wanted to mention that, Rob. There were other pranks that the court mentioned that happened. There was the, uh, well, you know what my favorite one is, but there was the water in the helmet. And uh, again, the duct taping, and of course the light the co light a coworker's pants on fire trick was was one of these. That's why you should not lie at work. <laughs> Never tell a lie at work because if you're a pipe fitter, I I don't know about other occupations. So the the basic issue with this case is was this kind of horseplay within the scope of Grabowski's job such that he should be prevented from suing a tort and his only remedy be workers' comp. Right. So generally, then, if if the wrong happens in the course of employment, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob. If if the wrong happened in the, in the, within the scope of employment, then Grabowski, who's the plaintiff, can only get workers' comp. That's a sole remedy. Correct. Right. But right. if it's and we'll get into the factors. If it's a such an extreme deviation, uh, so as for the act to be outside the scope of of employment, then Grabowski might also be able to have have a tort claim as well. 
Right. Okay. Right. So, you know, this is a very fact-specific kind of inquiry. Is horseplay part of your job? You know, I think if you're in something like if you're a security guard and, and you're knocked over, that's probably part of the job you should anticipate. You're, you know, you're there and uh, with the idea that you might be involved in a physical altercation as part of your job. But if it's horseplay, you know, two security guards playing with tasers and, you know, injures one of them, is that within their job or not? And it depends on whether or not uh, horseplay for that particular job fits the four-factor test that the court set up in the Grabowski case. All right, why don't we get a, since you mentioned the four-factor test that the Grabowski court adopted to determine whether an act is in the scope of employment, I bet our listening audience wants to hear what those four factors are, Rob. I, I sure would. Do you want me to go through them or, or do you want to? Uh, you know, <laughs> why don't you start with two and I'll do two. How about that? All right, that sounds great. So the first part of uh, the, the Larson four-factor test is the extent and the seriousness of the deviation from employment. How much of the deviation from the regular course of work was this uh, horseplay? The uh, second factor they call the completeness of the deviation. And really what that means is whether this prank or horseplay was mixed in with some work or did employees have work to do and did they completely abandon it in order to perform this horseplay in dereliction of their workplace duties. And uh, there are two more, which Rob is getting to here. So the third factor is the extent to which horseplay is accepted in the workplace. And the fourth factor is how much horseplay should be expected in the workplace. So whether it's accepted and expected uh, horseplay, that is, those are the third and fourth factors. And uh, the way the court actually applied these factors to the test, they said that horseplay was within the scope of Krabowski's employment, and therefore he was, in the end, precluded from, from collecting it toward. And again, uh, we talked about how, now, we should mention that it comes out in, in this case that the workplace, they did have a code of conduct, all, all workplaces do or should, but there becomes an issue, and this is going to go with unemployment of law as well, when things start to get tolerated in the workplace, that can supersede any written written code on the wall in terms of uh, making these legal decisions. And so we mentioned all the pranks with there was more than one incident of duct taping. There were incidents of water in the helmet. There were incidents of pants on fire. And the court says, well, you might have had a code of conduct, but it sure looks like uh, the type of uh, employment you had had come to expect these horseplay type situations in, in the workplace, in the ordinary course of a day's work. And courts love having these, these uh, delineated factors when they make a rule. I think uh, there's this idea that that's a better rule if you, you know, name all the factors. But I think you can, I wouldn't argue this in the court, but I think you can kind of simplify this whole four-factor test to just how crazy is your workplace, right? If, if you work at the Wall Street firm that's in, uh, what's the name of that? Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, right? Oh, yes. If you worked in Unless that you're firm, talking about Wall then, Street. <laughs> then, of course, well, I don't know how similar the firm in, in that movie is to actual Wall Street firms today, but if you're... Oh, no, Gordon Gecko looked like he had some shenanigans going on. If, if, you're, uh, if you're familiar with the movie, or actual Wall Street, it sounds like, uh, you know, if you know that there are all kinds of horseplay going on in your work every day, you go in and you wonder if you're going to be tossing little people at Velcro the Velcro padding or something. Oh, yeah, that's right. They threw little people across the office. 
and they had uh, like strippers and things all the time. I mean, and and uh, I think they were you know lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills, all that crazy stuff. Plus the drugs. That's yeah, the, the the drugs. So the point to that would be based on the Larson four factors, which were applied in Delaware. Those kind of actions would be considered not to exceed the scope of employment in that workplace, and therefore workers' compensation would be only, the only remedy that would apply to a plaintiff uh, a hurt in one of those. Uh, those right. If you're buying and selling stock and you're you're hit by an errant little person being thrown across the room, that might be part of the scope of your employment. And especially if the person who threw the little person was supposed to be buying and selling stock but completely abandoned it in order to throw this uh, little little person. Right. Whereas if you are a Supreme Court justice, horseplay is probably not part of your your uh, job. Unless it comes to uh, questionable emails, but I won't bring bring that up. Uh, so if Ginsburg <laughs> set Scalia's robe on fire, he could probably sue her at tort and not have to worry about workers' comp. Just a guess. One thing I want to point out with the second factor. Uh, determining the completeness of the deviation, whether uh, this was in the course of employment because it was mixed in the w with the work or not, the court, the Delaware Supreme Court actually, or the, the trial court and the Delaware Supreme Court affirmed after they had remanded it for that fact finding, determined that because of all the downtime in the job, they weren't abandoning work because there was no work to do. And in downtime, then it's, it was expected that they perform these, fr these pranks that it been what had become a customary, customary in the in the workplace. Oh. Anything else we should we should add on that? No, that's all I have there. It's uh, I guess if you work in a place that has a lot of horseplay, you just got to be careful. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. Probably uh, since I'm going to get into some unemployment law now, I probably shouldn't mention that I had more than one rubber band fight in that office with uh, <laughs> with some coworkers. Uh, You'll put your eye out, Joe. Yeah. How much would that eye be worth based on <laughs> to the eye? Considering that uh, that had become customary enough where workers' compensation would have been my only remedy. <laughs> okay. um, just to get into a little unemployment law. Cotton Eye Joe. Co Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, quickest, Sorry, qu quickest rubber band draw in the West, <laughs> or at least Delaware. Um, I, I know the economy has been, been bad, uh, certainly recently. Uh, it's gotten a little better of late, but over the last uh, decade or so, the economy hasn't hasn't uh, been going in a, in a great direction, and many people have had to file for unemployment. I was an unemployment uh, uh, appeals uh, referee. I judged unemployment cases, held those appeal hearings for uh, several years for the Delaware Department of Labor, and I thought uh, it might be interesting for people to know what goes into an unemployment appeal, what your rights are, and how such an appeal is decided. First just, of all, just to clarify, Joe, when you go before this hearing board, this is not uh, an attempt to get your job back. This is to not. get... It's a great, great question, Rob. What happens is an individual, we're talking about uh, cases of discharged, that's when you're fired, or cases when you voluntarily quit. Those are really the two main cases when it comes to an employment separation. When that employment separation happens, you're fired or you quit, if you think that you were in the right for quitting or that your employer wronged you, they fired you without just cause, then you apply for unemployment benefits, which you're entitled to. If you just 
decide to quit without good cause and you freely abandon your employment, you're not entitled to unemployment benefits. So but what if, if you are forced to quit? Like, say, if you feel like you don't get enough work, work has been shifted to well that, other people. I'm, I'll get into okay. whether or not that is a good cause, but you would think that you're in the right. But you would file a claim for unemployment benefits with the, with the unemployment office. Now, the first step of that is there's a claims deputy who will review the facts of your decision, send out uh, a notice to your employer. They will um, analyze analyze the facts and make a decision as to whether or not you are entitled for unemployment benefits. Is this specifically for Delaware? This is, is this Delaware I'm talking okay. about right now. This is Delaware specific. I'm not innately familiar with, with uh, other states' laws, although I believe they're relatively similar. Um, when I left in Delaware, $330 per week was the max you could get in unemployment benefits. I'm not sure if that has moved at all in the last uh, several, several years, but just as an aside, if you're curious about that. If you disagree with the claims deputy's decision regarding your eligibility for unemployment benefits, that is, if you're the employer and you don't think that you should be liable, or if you're the person who um, was separated from employment and you think that uh, you shouldn't have been denied, file an appeal with the Delaware Unemployment Office within 10 days. You have 10 days to get that out or you're basically, you're screwed. So make sure you get that out. That's the first thing you should do. 10 right. business days SOL. or 10 calendar days? 10 days from the date on the uh, on the paper. So it's calendar and, yeah. days? Yes. It, well, there'll be a date on the paper oh, okay. that says issue, decision <laughs> issued and you've got 10 days from that point. Okay. Now, you can file an appeal if the postmark is is uh, is days later, and that but that gets into some timeliness issues, and timeliness issues can be can be difficult to win. The point is just don't fool around and get it out uh, immediately. You can do that by fax, you can mail it, or you can uh, file it in person. So if you appeal that, you will receive a hearing with an unemployment insurance appeals referee. Uh, that's what I was. It's a level below the administrative board. We look at the decision that the claims deputy made de novo. De novo is a fancy word for whatever the, the, the claims deputy decided. It doesn't factor into my decision. I make my decision on my own based on my own personal analysis of the evidence. To do over. It's, it's basically equivalent to a do over. Now, with a discharge case, if the case is a discharge, the employer has to show that they had just cause for the discharge. The uh, burden of persuasion is on the employer in that case. They have to show by a preponderance of the evidence. That means it's up to them to show that it's more likely than not that they fired you with just cause. If you quit, the burden is on you to show that it's more likely than not you quit for good cause. Now, there are different definitions of just cause and good cause. In a discharge case, just cause is what they call in Delaware, fancy terms, legal, I know, willful or wanton misconduct. That basically means that you should have known, you should have been aware that your conduct was cause for discharge in your place of employment. Now, usually what this means is, based on case law that has since uh, elaborated on this point, you needed to have an unequivocal prior warning. If you weren't given an unequivocal prior warning, bring that out in the case. Um, you And if you're an employer, you want to bring your policy showing a that they were told the policy that they violated that they violated and pr and bring their warning to the to the hearing. So it goes both ways. So how would you apply this to Mangler from the uh, workman's comp case if Mangler were discharged after this incident? Well, that's an excellent excellent point, and it's analogous 
Mangler would have would try to show if he were discharged that the employer had uh, created an environment of toleration whereby this wasn't again it's kind of the same a, a, an extreme deviation from the normal course of employment and that he had never received a warning for duct taping Grabowski and it had happened before and the employer knew it so he didn't have unequivocal notice that that behavior could cause a discharge for just cause now the employer would try to say we've got this policy here that says this he signed it if the employer had warned him he would want to bring that and say we gave him a warning that put him on notice that he would be discharged he still did it that would be the hammer uh the hammer in the coffin or the nail in the coffin right there for uh for mangler in a good in a good cause for a quick case it's up to the claimant to prove that they quit for a good cause a good cause is usually interpreted to mean in delaware that you exhausted your administrative remedies which means you went up the ladder, you went up the chain of command mm -hmm. and made the employer aware of the situations that were causing you to consider quitting the uh, harassment in the workplace. Mm -hmm. You have to go through all of those levels of command and make them Until aware. The as far as you can go, as far as they let you go, yes. Mm -hmm. Send a letter to everybody up before you quit. It's hard to win a quick case. Mm -hmm. It really is. Uh, discharge cases are a lot easier to win in un unemployment sphere because, go ahead. What if you had, a, and I think this uh, was the kind of thing they talked about in constitutional law class, if they re were requiring their employee to work on their Sabbath, whatever day that is for their particular religion, mm. and they, you know, they didn't know about this beforehand, now they're being forced to work on that day and they just can't do it according to the tenets of their religion. It's a, it's a great question. The, uh, in, a, in a situation like that, the employee should make the employer aware that they were uh, not aware that they would have to work on a certain day that they shouldn't have known that they were going to have to work on that certain day. I mean, you, you kind of, when you get into an appointment situation, should be aware of what your general working schedule is. Mm -hmm. If it changes and it's a substantial deviation of the agreed upon conditions of hire, that can be a reason for good cause, but you still have to try to remedy it before you quit. You can't just immediately say, hey, you know, this is BS. We didn't agree on this. I'm out of here. You have to try to come to a reasonable mm -hmm. uh accommodation with uh, your chain of command before you can be considered to have good cause to quit. What about a, a situation where, say, if one employee, you know, say it sexually harasses another and they just can't be in that workplace anymore? Well, you would have to bring good evidence of that, uh, of the sexual harassment. You still absolutely would have to bring this up with your chain of command. I've had these cases, and if you quietly just tolerate it, and, and don't go up your chain of command, you're still not going to win. You want everything documented. You want to go up, uh, you want to be able to subpoena the witness, hopefully cross-examine <laughs> hopefully uh, cross -examine the, the individual that, uh, it, uh, that the employer has brought as, as their witness to say that, no, they didn't do this. And uh, you still certainly would have to go through the chain of command there. So um, no exceptions. No, no exceptions, although I will say that the, uh, the Unemployment Appeals Unit is, seems to be a quick case with uh, sexual harassment obviously taken very seriously and are, I would, I would say, more likely in that situation you, you uh, are compensated with uh, unemployment insurance uh, than in other cases of a quit. Uh, another term that the court, or situation that the court uses to uh, determine good cause in a quit case is, is the work uh, situation so bad as to cause 
one person to leave the ranks of the employed and join the unemployed. So that's sort of a test that they weigh to determine whether or not good cause exists. Um, some other points I just want to want to mention before I get off my uh, unemployment, uh, uh, I don't know what, uh, soapbox, I guess, here. Um, many claimants believe that they pay into unemployment, that I've been paying into this and now I get discharged and and I can't even, you know, get the money that I put into it. Now, in Delaware, that's not true. Employees do not pay into the unemployment insurance fund. But it does vary state by state. It does vary state by state. I believe in Pennsylvania they may. And on um, your check in Pennsylvania, you'll see a deduction for PAUI, okay. Pennsylvania Unemployment Insurance. But in Delaware, it's a common misconception. Uh, employees do not. Employers are taxed at a certain rate, whereby the more... Um, non-just cause cases of employees being fired and the more good cause cases of people of employees voluntarily voluntarily quitting the higher that they will be taxed uh, in unemployment in the unemployment insurance fund um, another thing I want to point out is hearsay hearsay rules are different in unemployment insurance appeals because it's an administrative uh, administrative court for lack of a better term and hearsay is allowed in administrative hearings in the state of Delaware but you can't just rely on hearsay for uh, a finding of just cause. An employer can't come in, have no firsthand witnesses to what the alleged misconduct was, but say, well, I had a, a coworker tell me that uh, the claimant threatened to punch somebody on the job, so that's why we, we fired the, the, the claimant. The claimant. If the claimant denies it, there can be no finding of just cause because you cannot based just cause solely on hearsay in the administrative procedure. When I was a law student in Pennsylvania, I was an intern at a legal aid office and we got a lot of these unemployment <clears throat> uh, appeal cases. And uh, surprisingly, at least to me, a lot of these were cases where people just blew off work for like four or Job five abandonment. days. They just don't show up for a while. Mm -hmm. And so they, the employer fires them or basically says they quit by not showing up either way. And so we would go to these hearings representing um, the employee, or the former employee, and I couldn't tell you how many times the employee actually won because the employer didn't send an attorney, I didn't apparently advise with an attorney, and so they just had their, their HR person there with the employee record, and the supervisor who may have witnessed the events going on wasn't there to testify, so all they had to present was hearsay. They couldn't lay the foundation for any of it. And, uh, and so there were a number of cases where the employer just had no evidence to offer at that point because it was all hearsay that they wouldn't admit. That's a great point. It can be extremely valuable, valuable to be represented by, by an attorney in an unemployment uh, hearing setting based on the ins and outs of that. Uh, whether or not it's, it's worth the expense in certain situations based on what you could get, that's you know, up to you. But um, as Rob pointed out, it can certainly help in some situations. For employers, one would be drug drug uh, testing situations. Oftentimes, employers would bring in nothing but an unauthenticated uh, document stating that an employee failed a drug test. They had nobody to lay the foundation, nobody to uh, establish what's called the chain of command, that this was a uh, handled correctly in the course of being transferred through the drug testing laboratory uh, until it was tested. Just no way to cross-examine that document to determine whether or not it was authentic. The employer would say, well, we have this piece of paper. At that point, that paper is 
essentially hearsay because you can't cross-examine it. And if the employee states, I, I didn't do drugs, I don't know what's wrong with it. And again, because you can't solely base a finding of just cause on hearsay, uh, the employer would lose that, lose that case. Now, in some cases, they will have a bunch of witnesses call in because they're aware of, of establishing the chain of command. And uh, in those cases, there will be a finding of just cause. You can't be too careful when it comes to uh, making sure you have the right evidence and are able to lay the foundation. You know, you have to know that what you have to offer as evidence uh, is going to be able to stand in a court. And uh, obviously, this podcast is not all about evidence. We probably should at some point uh, address it more fully. And probably more on hearsay at some point, some mm -hmm. point as well. Objection. <laughs> Jinx okay. says overruled. Well, I think uh, I think that brings us to the end of our time. You didn't have anything uh, extra to add, did you, Joe? No, Evan, did you have, we have a special guest who just popped in, Evan Littman, who has some experience with unemployment. Uh, first hand, first, first hand with Joe's knowledge. Well, we don't have much time, so we can't get, we can't no, get too much. But, but uh, we'll put it, put it this way. Everything that he told you, it, 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 I experienced 100%, except when not the drug stuff. <laughs> <laughs> not but, yet, not yet. But, but in the case of them bringing a lawyer and me possibly not having one, but Joe stepped up to the plate as a good friend that he is. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of things I wouldn't have known to say or to do or to ask, you know, and uh, I was informed by him. So, yes, having a lawyer is always great because they're going to know a lot more than, than you. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, when, when a company pays big bucks for a lawyer, you know, it's hard, it's hard to fight City Hall sometimes, even when you're in the right. But uh, it also helps to have a good witness, which uh, Evan was, Evan's an outstanding witness, and he was in the right, and I'm glad that that yeah. all uh, got worked out. And I got, my, I got my 3.30 a week. <laughs> and this, by the way, is not meant to be an advertisement right. for legal services by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, just informative. Anyway. All right, well, thank you so much for listening to Monday Night Law. I'm Rob Kleiner. You can reach me on Twitter at Monday Night Rob. I'm Joe Kenya. You can reach me at Just Joe Kenya, or I have another one that I said before. Monday night. Uh, uh, oh, I don't know. Just Joe Kenya will be fine. Monday Law Joe? Monday Law Joe, maybe. All right. All right. Podcast dismissed. Podcast dismissed. Thanks, all.